Hello. Live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash LSW slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Okay, we can hear you now. Lovely. Hi. Oh, hello, everyone. Oh, welcome um, to tonight's late show. Uh, I'm Noreen Khalid. Uh, time's just gone eight o'clock and it's the 1st of December and we are live on Teacher's Talk Radio. On tonight's show, we will be talking to Dame Rachel D'Souza uh, about her role as Children's Commissioner. And uh, later on in the show, we will be joined by Natasha Porter, who will be telling us about uh, the Unlocked Grad program. So if you have any questions about any of these topics, then please do phone in or text us and um, we'll take your questions and hopefully everyone can be, um, our, my guests will be able to answer them. So I'm just waiting for Rachel to di dial in. Uh, she was having some problems uh, joining in. Uh, but hopefully she'll be here soon. It's, uh... Hi, Rachel. Hi there. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yes. You're, you're Brilliant. Lucky. Thank you. Um, so very well, warm welcome to you all. Um, like I said, I've got Rachel D'Souza, Dame Rachel D'Souza with us today. Um, Dame Rachel D'Souza is the Children's Commissioner for England. Um, Children's Commissioner promotes and protects the rights of children, uh, standing up for the views um, and interests and acts as their eyes and ears across the government. And Dame Rachel is a nationally recognised educator and she's an advocate for improving the life chances of disadvantaged children. Before her appointment as Children's Commissioner, she led two schools from failing to outstanding uh, before founding and leading the Inspiration Trust, which was a family of 14 schools in East Anglia. Uh, that the trust was twice ranked as nation's top group of comprehensive schools based on pupil progress at GCSE. Uh, she was made a dame in 2014 for services to education. So welcome, Rachel, and thank you so much for taking the time out to come onto the show. Now, it's a real pleasure to be here, Noreen, to speak to you and to colleagues. Thank you so much. Um, right. So uh, before we start talking about your role as the um, commissioner, tell us a bit about your journey to teaching and then headship. Well, goodness me, I've been a teacher for 31 years. I started teaching in 1991. So after my degree, I took a year out, um, trained as a teacher at King's. I taught in Oxfordshire for a couple of years, mm -hmm. then to Tower Hamlets, to Sir John Cass Redcoat, um, which was absolutely fascinating at that, that point. That would have been in the mid-90s. Um, then after my son was born, worked in Luton for quite a time. So I worked in Luton Sixth Form College, then took my first deputy headship at Denby High School in Luton. 
Then the school down the road was about to become an academy. It was one of the first sponsored academies. It had been a failing school for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I went to see it and thought, gosh, I really, yeah, that's it's I really want to do this. So I applied um and got it and uh so led that school from um you know been failing for many many years as a, a, a as a new sponsored academy and we really turned it around that was a great effort and real privilege to do um then I got interested in what was going on in East Anglia because I couldn't understand why school performance on the league tables was so low and the cities it was going up so I took my next sponsored academy in uh, Norwich mm-hmm. um, and then when I was there it was, I had a fantastic time in Norwich and again we did a really good very different but good turnaround there and then um, with some good colleagues as trustees um, decided to set up the Inspiration Trust which is a group which we grew from nothing to a group of 14 schools they were mainly um, sponsored academies and for free schools and we, we literally wanted to create a family of schools um, with tr- that, were, that were really sort of rooted in the community in their community in Norfolk Norfolk and North Suffolk um, all the trustees were from there so so really exciting so you know and in in our trust we had one of the first maths free schools we had a number of coastal schools in Yarmouth that uh, uh, lower staff to Cromer, took a, a big comprehensive in Thetford. So a really, really, really good, diverse mix of schools, family of schools. Lovely. Um, I think you've sort of answered this already, but I'll ask you again anyway. Um, what attracted you to work in a failing school? Now, that's pretty hard. Somebody might say, um, you know, let's go for an easy life and let's go for a school, which is used to be satisfactory in those days, doesn't, didn't it? So why are failing schools? So I think I, I think I, in Sir John Cass, I got I really got a taste of what you could do. So when the first very first league league tables came out in the mid nineties, Sir John Cass, I just moved it to Sir John Cass and in Tower Hamlets, and it was the penultimate in the uh, the second to bottom in the whole country, <laughs> and and. Um, so it was like it went on an amazing journey, and I, I think I got a taste of the excitement and wonder of school improvement and what it can do to to change communities' lives. And once I'd sort of tasted that and seen that, uh, um, you know, it was you know it just it just was like a moral imperative. I just couldn't do otherwise. When I saw a school like that, I just felt I had to do it. And and the th- because I I absolutely knew that the young people in those schools could do as well as as children anywhere. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was it was just something we must do. Um, it was it was like a compulsion really. Um, so whenever it was always a bit of a joke on my board, I'd go. The DfE would ask me to go see a school that was you know in a terrible state, and I'd come back and say to the board, "We've got to do it. We've got to take it on." <laughs> um, and and um, you know, it's a real privilege to do that in a community to be to, to really turn those schools around. So um, yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose because every child deserves a chance at a good education, and especially if they've been in a failing school for years, then yeah, nothing better than going in and giving them, turning that school around and giving them a chance to, to do well. Well, and to watch their confidence grow. I remember at my first sponsored academy in Luton, uh, my first headship, 
um, you know, the children hadn't had like problem. Year 11s hadn't had a proper maths teacher for four years. And we basically got our, we found one maths teacher and he used to teach um, year 11. Like we put the whole of year 11 in two halls and, and all support them and let this maths teacher teach like uh, day, evening, holidays. And the thrill of the whole community and the whole school community when they really moved the results and were the most improved in the country and, you know, in, in one year. And I just knew they could do it if we put, you know, it, it's teacher, time in front of a teacher, time in front of a teacher could do it. And and the thrill of that for everybody, um, it's just worth it, really worth it. So you've, you've changed, you've probably helped generations, haven't you, by, by turning school with school around? Been part of it. I mean, leadership is one part of it, but yeah. so, but I mean, every, everyone, it takes everyone making immense effort. It's not that you do anything that's so much different. It's just the pace and energy and persistence in that first year or so. It does take a, a lot of work, but it's always a team effort, Noreen. Yeah, it takes a village to raise a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've um, I've got links with with East Anglia, especially Norwich. Um, I did my MPhil at the John Innes there, so yeah. I've always loved that part of the country. But so I want to know why why did you go to East Anglia? Why you know there are failing schools up north or elsewhere. What attracted you to East Anglia? Yeah, I mean it, it's I mean I'd never been, um, but I, I kept looking at those league tables and thinking, why are Norfolk and Suffolk at the bottom? Mm-hmm. And you know, as I said, by that time I was sort of a a, a, a sponsored academy principal. I was keyed into all the networks, mm-hmm. and I was watching the cities do better and better. And I was thinking, what is the issue? So actually, it, it was intrigue that took me there. Really, I, I wanted to work out what it was. Um, and, you know, Norfolk and Suffolk have been on a real journey, uh, but it did, you know, there was a point um, around about sort of 2008-9 where it really wasn't looking good there and it needed that intervention and change. Oh, wonderful. So, um, you know, I, I'm glad because, like I said, I love that part of the country and so I'm glad you went there and sorted things out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So now that you've left your role as the CEO of Inspiration Trust and you've been appointed as the Children's Commissioner, now uh, what interested you in the Commissioner's role that you gave up something which you had, you know, you gave up your baby and you went for this? Yeah, so so I mean, I've been CEO for for about nine years. So I'd, I'd um, you're right, we'd absolutely built the trust from from nothing to a you know a really thriving, fantastic. Um, place to work Um, so when the children's commissioner role came up I was fascinated by it because you know it's not a regulator it's got a really interesting brief and the bit of the the bit of the brief that really fascinated me was in school improvement I think we'd got to that point with academization with curriculum development with all the work we'd done that we'd almost got as far as we could get and the bit of work that I think really needed doing next was around um, how do we develop and bring that real verve and focus we've done in academization to send to AP, to the support around vulnerable children, to all the wider issues. Mm-hmm. So for me, the Children's Commissioner's role was, was about, you know, really trying to take on that piece of work. Uh, we've just had a question in from Sobia. 
um, she says um, she wonders what was the issue in the schools in Norfolk? Yeah, great question. Um, I think there were a few things. I, th I think there were there was just a sense of some of the basic things we've been doing in the cities, were, it, it, you know, with the sponsored academies, like put, getting in a really good behaviour model, you know, being really ambitious and just, you know, t basically working with teachers and students to say everyone can get there you know, their, their basic GCSEs and everyone deserves it. Um, some of the sort of technical things about school improvement just hadn't really landed there. And I just don't think there was that sense of belief it could be done. So it only needed one or two to really do it. And, and suddenly the landscape changed. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, and that's that's kind of the classic sponsored academy story really mm. you you one lands in the middle of a town and then suddenly the whole town sort of sort of improves um and so i think there was a big issue about aspiration belief but also some of the technical knowledge about how to do school improvement lovely thank you so much um going back to your children's commissioner role um so you've just started on it um what are your priorities during your term of office well my priorities uh, are the pri my priorities are defined by what children tell me so the first thing I did um, so I took over the role in March and the first thing I did was we were coming out of lockdown at that point and I wanted to ask England's children what did they need to thrive as they came out of lockdown what what was it they needed what were the barriers and also what did they need you know, what do they want for the futures and I think in my head, I thought, if I get the answers to those questions, I'll be able to define my priorities. So we launched a survey, the Big Ask survey, um, and we were really, we, we launched it for six weeks and we were really pleased. We got um, over half a million responses. So the largest response to any survey in England and pretty much in the world, apart from the US census. I got a bit of help from Marcus Rashford with launching it mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, our brilliant schools network really picked it up. So um, but but that response was great. And in, in those numbers, you've got um, 97,000 uh, children replied who had additional needs, 2,800 Gypsy Roma children, you know, uh, 3,800 children in care. And all of that sort of added to this picture, picture of, you know, what do England's children want and need now? And, and very much they set their, their, they've set the priorities for me for the years ahead. You've just answered one question I was going to ask. You, that, um, how how can you be sure that you, the survey reached um, those children who we tend to, who tend not to engage or who we, who we tend to not engage that for yeah. the uh, children in, in care, uh, disadvantaged children or love? So you've said that the response was quite good from them as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, we didn't leave that to chance. We, mm -hmm. um, we went into... Uh, youth offending institutes we went to make sure we got the survey to children in care we went to secure mental health wards we used all our networks for children in care because the office has got a great great network so we basically made sure we got everywhere there's no fewer than two in all 151 local authorities at least two percent of all the young people you know four to 18s in those areas have replied it's six percent of 40, four to eighteen year olds overall, and we've and it absolutely it's got we've got some of the biggest responses of all those vulnerable groups um, that have ever been got. So it really mattered to us that we heard from everybody. Do you know the strange thing though? The really strange thing, and you know, one of the things I'm probably answering your later questions earlier, but one of the things that really surprised me about about our survey 
is that it did not so we 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 basically you know can cut the survey by gender by ethnicity by geography by whether you know what sort of family you know are you in, are you in care are you in you know where what's your personal background because children have told us that and you know the strangest thing is that however you cut it the answers are the same we've got a really cohesive response from England's children and there is a response from England's children. We can talk about them in that way because there was very little difference in response, you know, from, from you know, whatever background you're from. And I think that's great, actually. I, I think that's really fascinating. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, if I was to start off that, I wouldn't have expected that. No, no. Well, we so often, there are so many things you don't expect, but we so often assume there's going to be huge difference. But, you know, that the, the responses, the same top three, you know, barriers, the same things for the future, it's it's really, really cohesive. And and I think that's really heartening. You can see some differences in the, in age ranges. You can see that you know, very young children up to about nine are really confident. And over nine, ten, as they're moving towards secondary, um, in the qualitative responses, you hear much more from teenagers about their uh, worries about their own self-confidence. You can see some changes over the age age groups, but still um, the responses were very, very similar. So this must be a really, really rich sort of data now. Absolutely. So government, we're, we're, we're getting lots and lots of interest from government departments. I think a lot of um, government departments have sat and thought, gosh, this really is a repository of knowledge about children. And they're asking us lots of questions. So, you know, whether it's attendance, whether it's mental health, whether it's, you know, all sorts of departments are coming to us and say, could you have a look in the data for that for us? So I think it's going to be keeping keeping us all going for years. I mean, I've got 250,000 text responses from the qualitative answers, and you can just ask ask the database almost anything. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that that the cohesive nature of, of the priorities and the and the barriers are really really interesting. So, um, what what do you think was for you? What was the few biggest things which the survey revealed? Yeah, so so I think first off, another big surprise, 80% um, of children told us coming out of lockdown that they were happy or fine. Now, it's so often we hear this terrible thing, you know, like, like misery, awful, but no, there was a, and, and I think that tells you a lot about their resilience and positivity. I mean, I got this sense from, from the survey of, of, you know, a generation that have been through such a tough time and, you know, some have been left really, really vulnerable, but they are optimistic about the future. They're hardworking. They want great jobs. I think they're very green. They want a fairer world, um, but, but they're very, very caring and caring for each other. I think that's lovely. Um, in terms of the problems and the barriers, um, the biggest one was around mental health well-being. Mm -hmm. I think we need to think of that in the context of April, May. They've been away from their friends. They're worried. I mean, when I went around the country, children were telling me about worried about making friends or I haven't seen my older relatives. Some real upset and concern there. Um, so that that and, and just wanting someone to talk to or, or you know that wanting to be able to share their feelings, I think that was really and one of the reasons actually I really supported the longer school day and lots of 
you know, activities going on at school is because I think what young people really needed was to be together, mm-hmm. to do the sport, the drama, the just just having good quality relationships with each other. And I think I felt that was a really, really important way forward. Mm-hmm. So, so that was important. I think they also, life at school was an issue. They were worried, worried about catch up, worried they'd missed out. And they were worried, they wanted places to go, things to do. You know, they wanted safe places to go. Um, Lots of concern about the online world. Biggest word used in the survey was play. I think that's really interesting. (laughs) Um, But for the the future, absolutely massive. But 70% of that, over half a million, biggest thing for them for the future was um, a great job, a great career. And that's why they were concerned about education. They, they wanted a good education, but they wanted to succeed. And it was a concern to them that they wouldn't. So great career, great future, uh, you know, great, great career, great job was big. And there is no lack of ambition in England's children, I'm telling you. I've met the next two prime ministers. I've met the next Elon Musk. You know, they're, they're, they really want to roll their sleeves up and work hard. So um, really impressive, I think. Again, it's, it's, uh, sometimes we think that our children may not be that aspirational, that we have to push them to become things. But you're telling me that you know, your survey has shown that they are aspirational. They want more information, Noreen. So lots of them were saying, you know, we want good jobs. Some of them were like, tell me more about apprenticeships. I want uh, someone, someone to go to university. They want to know more about the adult world. Lots of like questions, everything from how do I like have a bank account to, you know, you wouldn't believe the questions we've had, but to, to how do I get this career? How do I get work experience? Yeah, absolutely focused. If anything, I'd say too, too concerned, you know, when I've got nine-year-olds worrying about what their jobs go, whether they'll be able to have a good career, it, it makes me wonder about childhood sometimes mm. that, that we're not giving them enough um, childhood. You said that, Play was quite a quite uh, a word mentioned quite often. What did they say about play? I think it was. It's interesting. Don't forget the context was they've been locked away and not mm. been with each other. So from from little ones just wanting to go to their local park, I want somewhere to play. To I mean, in Luton they were desperate for cricket competitions and community competitions that in Bolton they wanted football and outside activities it was you know there was just a real passion for play sports been together you know just 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 green spaces it wasn't make me a skate park or take me to the shops it was just play it was it was I was really heartened no doubt the point in time having had lockdown um, affected, affect, I mean, you know, it was a simple survey, so it was what children felt at that moment. Mm-hmm. But I was really interested to read that. Were there any questions, now that you mentioned the, the, the lockdown and everything, was there any questions specific about COVID and about the pandemic? About yeah. So it was very much coming out of lockdown, you know, uh, we basically asked about their happiness levels. We asked about what barriers they felt coming out of COVID, what were the barriers? Um, and then we also gave them a free text box to comment on that. So um, so it's very clear that they feel coming out of COVID, they were worried about their mental health, worried about their education, and they wanted to get out and, and be together in a safe place, be able to play. That was their concern. We did get quite a lot of concern about it's interesting because people say, oh, pov- what about poverty? Well, actually, 
when you look at the poverty, you know, was there a, a question about that? In you know, was it harder for poorer children? And we've read a lot about it, but in the responses, there was very little difference. But what you did in terms of um, their own their own sort of uh, answers around have I got enough money to do the things I want to do? We asked them that, mm-hmm. but that they were the concern in the more disadvantaged areas was around family strain, worries about dad's job, worries about mom's job, worries about parents. And that's what I say about being very caring and resilient and, you know, worries about others um, in that area more than anything. You've um, just mentioned family. Did, did you get a, a feel for what children nowadays think, what, what family is, what's a family unit? Massively important. It was one of our top five themes, family come again and again and again. And do you know what? One of the most important thing so children want for the future after jobs and careers is a great family, good family. Um, and that was very, very important and to all children and particularly to children in care, um, but to all children that was both both family strain or things going wrong with the family was the most upsetting thing for them, or the barrier, one of the barriers. And what they most wanted for their future was a great family themselves. And again, um, you know, it, 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 they, they weren't defining family. You know, family was, you know, whether it was mom, whether it was dad, whether it was nuclear family, it was, family was all shapes and sizes, but the absolute commitment to it was there. That's, that's really great what you say about... Uh family is is um it's not only mom and dad or the nuclear family it's it's everybody who's around you who's yeah family yeah it's 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 an and such sadness about not seeing older relatives during lockdown and worry about older relatives and and care and concern and and again i mean i traveled around the country when we were doing a survey i went from Gateshead to Grimsby to Scunthorpe to Withenshaw to Bristol I mean everywhere and talked to groups of children and we went into all the different settings that we've talked about I was in Felton we went everywhere and um, the, the children were talking to us about this you know family community play you know a real but also their own you know wanting to contribute their own ambition their commitment to fairness it was lovely it's really really i i actually think this is going to be a really fantastic generation you know all i'd say almost like the post-war generation they've had this terrible experience of the pandemic and you know it's been tough but i think it's it's you know they are they are it's almost focused them young on the things that really matter um it's i think it's been a very powerful experience for this generation um it reminds me of when my daughter was uh, had just turned two and we were in America and she fell really ill and she had to be admitted to hospital. And the doctor who was treating her there said, uh, children go down really quickly, but they bounce back really quickly as well. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think that's uh, your, serv- you know, what you're saying shows that that's true on a larger macro level as well, that they yeah. may have been worried, but they are going to bounce back. Yeah, and it's the strange thing is, Noreen, I I was expecting, you know, I'd read lots of things. We've we've all we'd all been worrying through the pandemic, hadn't we? And we were concerned and and so I was surprised in a really really pleasantly surprised by you know by the the overall responses and the general sort of resilience and happiness. But the worries are real worries. And actually when you look at that 20% who are concerned, 
there are there's often a multiplicity of issues um you know it's you can almost see layer on layer of issues and and so i think again for me as children's commissioner really focusing in on that group of children who are who are struggling is what we need to you know something that we we could make a real difference by doing that and and uh, you know and we could make a difference long term as well which is why i love all the work on prevention early help early family help i think i think the children's responses have actually shown us the way um one question just popped into my head what was the age range of of children who responded to this survey? four to 17 so um four to 17 and again you can see different responses so for example on the mental health well-being being response um it was much higher among older teenage girls m much more negative response than younger ones it got worse as they got older with with um 16 year old teenage girls particularly affected um, we did talk to, you know, we went out and talked to parents groups. We went to a range of early years settings, but it wouldn't have made sense to ask them to fill in a survey, although quite a few of our sort of recommendations are around the earliest years. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we couldn't get like two-year-olds filling in surveys, it just not in a meaningful way. We'd have to do it very, not, not like this, and we would have to do something quite different, I think. Thank you. Um, we're going to have to take a short break for some news, um, latest educational news and, and some ads. Um, but we'll come back and then we'll continue our conversation after the okay. news break. Thank you. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. On Monday, the government recommended the wearing of face masks in communal areas and corridors in schools in response to the Omicron variant. Teachers are now urging that this recommendation becomes a mandatory ruling, as it now is on public transport and in shops. Head teachers feel the advice for schools makes it difficult to enforce, and teachers would like the guidance extended to classrooms. Dr Mary Bousted, NEU Joint General Secretary said, COVID does not recognise the difference between a corridor and a classroom, and a failure to require face coverings in both areas in secondary schools is a misstep in the latest guidance. Dr Patrick Roach, NAS UWT General Secretary, agreed. If schools are to maintain safety during the remainder of this term, the government will need to accept that its messaging needs to be stronger. Face coverings have been mandatory in Scottish classrooms since November 2020. In Scotland, educational institutes are increasingly introducing gender-neutral toilet facilities. Schools in Dundee, East Renfrewshire and Edinburgh have all introduced these facilities following warnings in 2019 from Scottish National Party politicians and by the Scottish Equality and Human Rights Commission that schools would leave themselves open to lawsuits if they did not provide them. Parents across Scotland have, however, raised concerns over gender-neutral toilets in secondary schools, which can see 12-year-old girls and 18-year-old men sharing facilities. Harry Scott, Scottish Borders councillor said, 
Why is it not possible to have male, female and gender neutral toilets which would cater for the needs of everyone? Why can that not be achieved in our schools? This has been your daily education news briefing. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Welcome back. So um, this is the late show on uh, Teachers Talk Radio. We are live um, on Teachers Talk Radio. I've got with me Dame Rachel D'Souza, who's been talking to me about her role as the Children's Commissioner and especially the Big Ask survey, uh, which uh, which her office conducted. Uh, this is the first time such, such a, big a big survey has, has been, been done. done. Uh, so, Rachel, going back to the survey. Um, as adults, we are quite concerned about um, online dangers and online activity which children may get uh, involved with. Did that uh, concern the children you surveyed? It absolutely did. So um, I think particularly in two ways. One in terms of just wanting to get off. You know, what one, one child talked about it as get off the labyrinth of social media and get outside. I think they were, whilst everyone, you know, appreciates how important the digital world was, you know, to keep everybody learning during lockdown, I think I think the children particularly were desperate to get to get offline and out. Um, I think in relation to the mental health questions as well, we got lots of answers um, around, particularly around that teenage girl age group of concerns about uh, things they were seeing that were affecting their body image, um, things around, um, I mean, don't forget it was just after um, the Everyone's Invited website. So, you know, there were lots of kids talking about their experiences there. And that's why, um, you know, I'd raised it as an issue. And I was really pleased that government asked me to look into um, keeping children safer online, particularly in relation to the online safety bill. And indeed, you know, we've been working really hard on that follow-up. And again, again, that's where I see us as having our, you know, having our, the children have set the pace here. They've told us what, what they need us to do. Um, so, so what I've been doing is um, I've had a series of roundtables. I've had the adult companies in, the porn companies in, and challenged them about keeping children off their sites um, and making sure the online safety bill, you know, I'd really, really like to see them brought into scope um, because, you know, that it's clearly concerning for children that they're coming across all this stuff online and they just shouldn't, you know, childhood, we wouldn't, we wouldn't allow these things offline, offline so why do we allow them online? Um, and I've had the social media companies in and indeed today, 
Um, I had all the big eight tech companies in with uh, two secretaries of state, Nadine Doris and Nadine Zahawi and children's minister Will Quimps and have actually worked with them today, challenged them and they've made a pledge to try to do more for the future in terms of keeping children safe, um, reporting and being transparent about about um, children on their site and um, and actually helping create materials to help parents and children uh, be safer as well as, as clearing up their own sites. So I'm, I'm pleased where we, we've you know produced a set of recommendations as well and that we're moving on that. I'm hoping that online safety bill is going to make a real difference. But pro- you know, we, it, it, regulation is great, but actually we need everyone working together right now to keep <laughs> kids safer online. Very true. And and the beauty of it is that your, the children have told you they want this. It's not us old fogies who's, you know, yeah. saying that, uh, that it's the big bad wolf at, in your phones. It's children who are concerned themselves. So we do need to listen to them and, and take their concerns on board. Do you know, Noreen, one of the most surprising things, um, we've been working really hard with 16 to 21 year olds and asking them what they wish their parents had known about social media because they've just been through this and um, getting them to help write guidance. We're going to do some parents' guides from that perspective, what I wish my parents had known. Um, and the, the results are absolutely, you know, I mean, this is that generation, I'm telling you, their children won't be <laughs> unlimited online. They are like, you've got to keep the you know age verification age assurance is probably the most important thing you've got to start talking to nine and ten year olds um you know harrowing experiences and they're saying you know we need to be far far more serious about keeping children safe and and actually you know i'm the mother of a 26 year old and i felt guilty about how little i knew when i heard these 16 to 21 year olds talk um so i think um you know i think we really do have to act here to keep, to keep kids safe. I, I think they, they really are switched on. I remember my, I was, um, I had met somebody on Twitter and we had chatted about governance and I was going to, we set up uh, a meet to meet over coffee uh, in London somewhere. And my children were quite upset and they said, uh, that's somebody off the internet. How can you go and meet somebody? Yeah. How do you know that's not an axe murderer? So I said, no, well, I'm meeting in a public place and I'm telling, letting you know. But the fact that they brought this up was really uh, reassuring to me that they take safety so so seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I agree. And I think, again, I think we have to catch up. We have to catch up with them uh, and not turn a blind eye. And we must inform ourselves. So I'm seeing that. And, and I think, you know, I meet so many parents of of like nine and 10 year olds who are really frightened. And uh, so, I mean, my challenge to the tech companies was come on, you know, we we need to do more. I'm really pleased to see government really uniting and taking this seriously as well. For the first, you know, I mean, you could not have been in my meeting today and left um, without thinking that government has really had a step change on this. I mean, Nadine Doris was unbelievably strong. So I'm very, very hopeful that that online safety bill isn't over the line until it's over the line. And, you know, we have to stay strong on this and and keep this on the agenda. That sort of um, preempts my next question, which was that, you know, um, the results of the survey, are they going to, are you hoping that they will feed into policy? So it looks like 
they will. Absolutely. Otherwise, what? The, do you know one of the biggest questions children asked me was yeah. how? How? What are you going to do about it? We'll we'll fill your survey in, yeah. but what's going to happen? So the first thing I did was spend summer. We wrote nine policy papers. They're all on our website. Site, and I spent summer um, going from government department to government department, talking to ministers, and really trying to influence the spending review. So we tried to do that really quick. Mm-hmm. short term what do children need now and I was pleased to see some of the things get in there like um, our recommendations for children in care getting uh, that the you know the exact amount of money we ask for for new children's homes the early family help you know lots of good stuff I mean you always want more mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I would have loved to have seen more support for the extended day but you know I think um, that's something we could grow over time but um, my view is you know, it's so powerful to be able to go to a government minister and say, actually, half a million children say this. Yes. And, and Nadine Zahawi uh, launched, I mean, literally um, came with me to launch the Big Ask. It was his first week in office. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, I, I'm a pollster. I set up YouGov. I can't believe you've got this many children. And he made all his ministers read the Big Ask. Yes. Um, and that has kind of really unlocked lots of doors and lots of thinking because it's a true evidence base um so i think we need to do more in terms of seeking children's views because i think government is receptive um you, you know i don't always get exactly what i want but you know i'm working really hard to get the best deal for children a new deal for children that's what we need mm-hmm. that takes me to my next question that um it's a really rich source of data that are there any plans to say repeat it in say three years or five years time yeah great question we can see a trend or something great question so i'm thinking at the moment about what would be the right thing to do there i'm going to be talking to my advisory board about it and i'm trying to take lots of opinions because Mm -hmm. that moment coming out of lockdown was a really unique moment Mm -hmm. and you know it, it it the questions we asked and how we did the survey was it would be hard to repeat exactly but I think we absolutely do need to think about how we follow you know how how we when when we're going to do our next big national one but what I'm getting now are for example our DfE minister saying to me we don't want to do any policy without children really knowing what children think Mm -hmm. so I'm getting asked an awful lot but can you tell me what children think about this can you get the data on this can you can you find out children's thoughts on that so I'm thinking really hard and I'd welcome anyone's views um, on how we can use that unique ability to sort of um collect children's views I mean I have an entire you know great evidence team and policy team how what should we be asking for and and how should we follow up so I think that's a key question for me over the next over the next month or so as I write our three-year strategy lovely thank you thank you so much Rachel um last two questions really um Sobia said she's missed that um what was the response from tech companies the tech companies right so in, it's interesting because the the um so so we we the the adult companies were like put age verification on us just make sure you put it on all of us right but bring us into scope of the bill we don't want kids on the site mm-hmm. the tech companies are more complex um and but i think we had a bit of a breakthrough today um because we have got them to sign up to a pledge, which we're going to be sharing hopefully on Radio 4 tomorrow um, on the Today programme. Um, well, they have signed up to some, some first steps of agreement. But I think our real breakthrough was around 
vulnerable children because the argument was adults can put age checks on it's absolutely fine and I think it was that look we need you to step up show some moral compass and do more for vulnerable children so we got a positive response we got some good commitments um but you know I think what was interesting was that um Nadine Doris particularly government were saying well well yes and, and if you don't there's going to be real trouble and and this bill is is unre- if you've seen early drafts of it it's going to be unrecognizable it's going to be much stronger so we've got some really good carrot and stick now and um, so i'm hopeful for change but it's not easy these are big global businesses you know who hire lots of people to try to keep their business model going um i was happy as a first step but there's a long way to go that's that's really wonderful news to hear um and thank you so much for um completing the circle going back to where we started from if uh, somebody is listening in what is your one piece of advice really quickly about how to how to turn around a school oh goodness me <laughs> um I, I i honestly you you've just got to believe you've got to believe you've got to you've got to believe it can be done and you have to really understand the leaders have to really understand what's not working so they're not trying to fix everything they try they actually try to put the things in place that that school really needs so i think it's it it's it's huge belief and then listen 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 look and really understand the school and then you'll know what to do and thank you so much rachel it's been delightful talking to you and hearing from you about the survey and um you know congratulations on getting so many uh, responses and 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 the fact that it's feeding into policy that's the biggest thing for me so um thank you for joining us um so i'll i'll let you go now and enjoy the rest of your wednesday evening and lovely to talk again. to you noreen always you. great to talk to you have a good evening thank you bye rachel bye bye so that was dame rachel de souza who was talking to us um uh, we started the conversation about um her headship how she turned around failing schools uh, how she set up the uh, help set up inspiration uh, trust um, in Norfolk um and then her role as children's commissioner and um, you heard it here before uh, you've heard it here first um tomorrow you can tune in into radio 4 and hear about uh, the pledge which the tech companies will be making so she's going to be talking more about that pledge tomorrow on radio 4 um So the next guest I have um joining us today is Natasha Porter and she's already in the studio. Hi Natasha. Hi Noreen, thanks for having me. Oh, uh, thank you for coming and thank you for giving up your uh, your Wednesday. Um I I hadn't sort of clicked that um you have a connection with Rachel that you you are advising the children's commissioner. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. What what does your what does that involve? Yeah, so um I'm a recent addition to the advisory advisory board and it involves I guess supporting Rachel to make sure that her work is impactful and also challenging her to make sure that it's really focused on um making sure that kids are represented and get the best deal they can. From my perspective, it's particularly focused on a very small group of children who are held in custody um and often on recognized or thought about by policymakers because there's so few of them but actually they are so needing to be heard and listened to and to be part of 
policymakers thinking. So um, obviously all children I'm interested in, especially my background as a teacher, but that particular group are the ones who I'm flying the flag for. Thank you. So um, I just launched into questions. Uh, if my, I think I'll give a background uh, to Natasha for our listeners. Um, Natasha is the CEO of Unlocked Graduates. Um, she was a founding teacher as well as a senior leader at the King Solomon Academy. Uh, Natasha's career began when she joined the 2006 cohort of Teach First. Um, she completed three years of teaching English in a comprehensive school uh, and then spent further five years as the founding teacher and senior leader at King Solomon. Uh, during her time at the academy, she led the English department and then the upper school from pre-opening stage until their first GCSE results, which were some of the best in the country. So welcome, Natasha. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay. So before we talk about uh, the Unlocked Grad programs, tell us a bit about like um, being a founding teacher of King Solomon Academy. Why was that academy set up? What got you interested in setting it up and all of that? Yeah, and, and I think it was one of the kind of greatest privileges and most exciting times of my whole life. So um, there was a uh, the academy movement. It was under New Labour. Um, and there was uh, kind of an ability to start new schools. Um, I was on Teach First. I was, I'd stayed in my Teach First school. I'd completely fallen in love with teaching, having never thought it was going to be the job for me and that I was just going to do Teach First for two years and then go on and do something else. Um, I just, I very quickly just thought it was the best job in the world ever and um, really enjoyed it and was teaching in a school. Uh, it was one of the overspill schools when Hackney didn't have enough secondary schools in northeast London, up in Finsbury Park. And um, heard about um, this school in America, a KIPP school, Knowledge as Power Programme. I'd never heard about it before, but I went to a Teach First conference. I think I might have had to, to get credits or something. And um, it was in a November, it was in Canary Wharf, and I sat in a room which I'd happened to sign up for, and I heard someone talk about his school in America, where they were serving a community where I think it was 98, 99% of their kids got a uh, free lunch, so they were serving a particularly deprived community, and um, 100% of their kids went on to a four-year college programme, or got an offer from a four-year college programme, and it just the way that he talked about what he saw as his responsibility as a teacher completely transformed what I realized was possible, mm -hmm. I think. And, and I was, um, I definitely had grown to believe that the social challenges that the children who I was working with came from meant that it was impossible for them to be successful academically. And actually they were facing such challenges in their personal lives from poverty, from, um, uh, unsafe homes that we just we just couldn't get them good GCSE results. The best we could get them was perhaps that they'd be able to fill in a job application form. Mm -hmm. um, and and really slowly over time, I'd begun to believe that. And hearing this guy talk about these kids completely bucking the odds and closing the gap, um, I I just I guess I I realised that I was selling those kids short and that um, and. Yeah, it was really challenging. And then heard about uh, um, uh, Mossbourne School starting in Hackney and that they were getting these great results. And actually, um, there was 
a guy who I knew called Max Heimendorf. And um, I knew that he was really interested in these schools. And then it was announced that he was been asked to start one. So I got in touch with him. Um, we met for coffee and, um, and I was just so excited and inspired and then really fortunate to join his founding team and to be oh. part of that journey and started as head of English. Just like I'm passionate about kids knowing how to read and write and just think it's, you know, a love of literature, a love of reading is transformational for people's lives. I think it's definitely got me through some really dark times in my life. Um, just being able to kind of pick up a book and lose myself in it and giving that to kids and the experience, the ability to kind of experience things through other people have, if you're going through something difficult and you can read about it, you can process it through that. Um, so I was really excited about the opportunity to set up a school with reading at the heart of it. And that's what Max promised me at King Solomon Academy. Oh, that, it's such a lovely story to hear. And it's really lovely to hear how you set that up thank you for sharing that with us um so um moving on now um i believe a few years ago dame sally coates did a review of prison education and i believe you were involved with that yep so i was i was working at the dfe after king solomon academy um we'd got amazing gcse results and i'd gone to government i i wanted to take what we'd learned could work across a school and see you know what what could be learned across the system? How can we share this learning uh, with schools everywhere? And I thought government might be the way to do that. My particular skill set wasn't perfectly suited for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was at the DFE and then again, read in the paper, there's a theme coming out here that Sally Coates had been asked to lead an education review in prisons. And I, I knew Sally, I'd met her. So I just kind of pestered her until she um, until she let me join the review. I mean, initially she she did say no and I just, kept badgering her until she gave in um and I kind of sent her pleading emails just saying you know I work really hard and you know I when I put my mind to stuff I really deliver and please so um she the review committee had already been announced which I think was the part of the challenge but she went and spoke to Michael Gove who's secretary of state at the time and they agreed to let me join the um the committee actually looking at the workforce issue so focused on getting great teachers into prison and and what the kind of challenges were to that happening. So why was there a need to review it in the first place? So, the, I mean, the, at the heart of it was that um, Michael Gove and and Sally, um, and I think all of us eventually, you know, the, the belief that education should be at the heart of prisons mm-hmm. and that it isn't yeah. was at the core of it. And there's really high reoffending rates. So you know, about half of all people in prison are back in prison within a year of release. And I think for um, for Michael Gove, for some of the people around him, there was a belief that education can be a silver bullet. Mm-hmm. It can be something which completely radically transforms the trajectory of someone's life. And there was a lot of excitement about the idea of what could happen in prisons if we really put that within the heart of the prison regime. So what what would you say were the main findings of the review? So I think the, the main finding was that education is not at the heart of, of the prison regime. And it was really looking at how to better do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there were lots of things. So the person who runs the prison, the prison governor, actually education is outsourced. So they, um, at the time of the review, had no control over who ran their education, over who was teaching in their prisons, over what was taught in their prisons. Um, 
there's also, you know, one of the main reasons people don't reoffend when they leave prison. Uh, there's a few things. Um, one of them is having people, good people around you, uh, people who love you, people who care for you, people who want the best for you. The, the second one is place, having somewhere safe to live, somewhere where you can, um, you know, go to uh, uh, and and be safe. And the third is purpose. And having a job on release, or if not a job, then studying makes a huge difference to reoffending rates. Mm-hmm. So that was the real aim. How do we make prison a place where people get the education they need that means when they leave, they are people purposeful. So what did you end up recommending the government do? So so as always with these things, quite a long list of recommendations. Um, One of the key recommendations was to... So I think one of the things that we found when we went into prisons, my initial thoughts, very naive. Um, I do believe education can be a silver bullet. In my own life, it's been transformational. And we went into prisons and also, you know, just believing teachers are at the heart of that. Relationships are at the heart of that. So if you get a great teacher in a prison, engaging with a prisoner, that prisoner will engage in education because the relationship will lead them to do so. And therefore, everything will be good. So so really, my premise was great. We need to get good teachers in here and then we'll fix reoffending. No one will reoffend. The world will be a beautiful place and we'll all be happy. But then you go into prisons and actually to get from your prison cell to education, you've got to go through sometimes 13 locked doors. Mm-hmm. And um, so you get up in the morning, you're in prison, um, you you often get a kind of breakfast pack um, kind of put on your door the night before, you might have eaten it through the night. So, so you might not have breakfast in the morning. You get out of bed, you've got to get yourself out of bed, dressed, ready, and, um, and then choose to go through 13 locked doors to sit in education. And some of the prisons we went in, you got paid less for doing that than other work. So there was a reason not to do it. Um, we know that about 50% of prisoners can't read and write at adult levels. Um, we know that about 50% have been expelled from school. So this is a group of people who do not have positive memories of education, who are not going to naturally want to get up in the morning and walk through 13 locked doors and sit in a classroom. Once they get there, um, there's huge issues with, you know, three hour long lessons, lots of worksheets because there's very little technology in prison. There's a lot less money. Um, so there's, there's all these kind of barriers to education. And actually what we found is people who have got up in the morning and made that decision to go and sit in a classroom, despite all of those barriers, like they're probably going to be OK. Like mm-hmm. they're probably going to be able to go out into society, get up in the morning and get themselves to um you know, to do something purposeful with their lives. And that ability to get up in the morning and do something purposeful is something that many of us take for granted. But actually, it's a hard thing to do. You know, it's a hard thing to, and especially to go and sit somewhere for a three-hour lesson where you're sitting through worksheets Mm -hmm. and stay interested and invested and engaged. Like, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure I could do that. And, And I'm someone who loves education and learning. So, we began to realize that even if you had like Harvard University, I'm just, you know, choosing yeah. as an example, they might not be excellent, but let's just say running the education unit and it's phenomenal best teachers in the world. Prisoners just don't get there unless they're already interested in education and they want to invest in themselves. And, and even believing you are capable of learning and you are worth investing in requires a level of self-esteem of self-belief of self-care that many prisoners just do not have mm-hmm. so more and more through the rece- through this this work Sally and I um felt that actually that 
the solution, we, we both believed that, you know, relationships are at the heart, really, of uh, that humans have a, almost a unique capacity to change. I mean, human beings can change. They can make different decisions. They can have dramatically changed trajectories in their lives. But the thing that often creates that is a human relationship with, with someone who believes in you and someone who's, who's able to support you. And that's in a school, that's a teacher, but actually in a prison, that's only a teacher if you get to the classroom and you only get to the classroom if you've got that. So that's when we became obsessed with the prison officer. And we met a prisoner, sorry, it's like the longest answer, but no, no, we met this prisoner right. in, in, um, in a prison, a high security prison in London. And um, we heard about, sorry, we heard about this prisoner and, and, then, um, and then met with some of the people involved afterwards. And he, and we've, we've heard this story kind of indifferent, you know, I've now seen Unlock graduates able to do similar work, but a prisoner who'd been in and out of prison for years, um, came from a traveler background, was illiterate, couldn't read and write. And, um, but, and, and there was a prison officer who was saying, why don't you get involved in education? You're here on a long stretch. You know, you might as well learn how to read and write. And he was saying, no, I'm, I'm just too thick. I can't do it. I can't do writing. I've tried. It's not for me. Mm-hmm. And the prison officer got some paper and a pen and had this prisoner um, said, well, just, you know, draw me a shape. And the, then he, he said, well, you know, draw a line. Well, you've just written the letter L. Put a mm-hmm. dot on top. You've just written the letter I. And he slowly helped this prisoner realise that he was capable of writing. And then he, um, the story that, that we were told was about the prisoner coming out on the landing, you know, high security, big guy, everyone a bit nervous, coming out and um, shouting and making all kind of fuss. And everyone thinking, oh, crikey, we're going to have to intervene. What's going on? And it turned out he was waving a book, a picture book. It was like Spot the Dog or something. And he was shouting, I fucking read it, I fucking read it. Oh. And as they got closer, he was actually shouting, I fucking read it. Sorry to swear on your <laughs> um, highbrow radio show. And, and, actually, and, and it was the first book he'd ever read independently. Uh-huh. And, and just the, the life-changing capacity and, and then got involved in education and, and um, you know, ended up learning how to read and write. And there's, there's so many stories of prison officers doing that work. And yet they are a workforce that's hugely under-resourced, under-invested in, under-sung, and, and society just doesn't recognise the awesome work they do. So that's when Sally and I just... We, so that's the recommendation that came to get graduates to go in on the landings to really promote education, to get those prisoners from the landing into the classroom. And then the great teachers can access them and deliver the kind of curriculum they need. But until they make that journey from the landing to the classroom, it just doesn't matter what happens in that classroom almost. So it's, so it's, uh, was the main idea of unlo- unlocked graduates, was it born while you were working on this review then? Exactly. Yeah. So it was while we were working on the review and it just felt more and more like focusing on teachers was just too far down the journey um, because we needed to get them to the classroom before we really needed to worry about getting. um, I mean, of course, you always need great teachers, but until they were going to the classroom, didn't matter what was happening there, really. Yeah, you have to lead the horse to the to the to the water before it will start to drink. Exactly. And, and actually, once you've led the horse there, you need to then kind of encourage and coax and support. Yes. And if the horse is scared, I mean, this metaphor is getting a bit strange, but <laughs> you know, there's an ongoing process of support, yes. um, especially if that horse believes that they're not worthy of that water for whatever reason, or like they're not capable of drinking it, then it's, yes. it, that, that's quite a long and drawn out process. And, and the person who's seeing the prisoner day in, day out, 
including the hardest to reach, most vulnerable and most challenging prisoners is the prison officer. So um, that's that's really fascinating, especially to hear about how how the idea of unlocked graduates uh, came out. Um, go on, tell us about the program. What is unlocked graduates? So um, and and I think it it does spring from this kind of um, passion for this extraordinary workforce who are constantly undervalued for the amazing work that they do and having seen i think what's happened to teaching it was you know similar i think what what the the kind of premise when brett wigdorts was starting up teach first he did some research that showed a great teacher is the most important factor in a great in great school and then someone getting a great education and it was it was a kind of similar premise about who is the agent of change in a prisoner's life so Unlock graduates, we um, we focus on developing outstanding leaders to break cycles of reoffending in prison and through society. What that means in practice is we are recruiting graduates to come and be prison officers. Um, the reason why we target graduates is is uh, there's a few reasons. Um, there's no evidence that a graduate makes a better prison officer than a non-graduate, so it's definitely not. It's not anything like that. It's firstly that it is actually a diversity to have a graduate from the most prestigious universities become a prison officer. They become teachers, police officers, they join the army, they become doctors, they become social workers. They work with people who are in prison at every other stage of their lives. They do not become prison officers. And for us, that's really problematic because the hardest to reach, the most difficult, challenging group who ends up in prison needs the most... Um, Needs, needs a really diverse group of problem solvers working with them. And to miss out that group of very uh, academically successful people is a real mistake. So that's the first reason why we try and attract that group of particularly academically successful graduates. The second reason is, rightly or wrongly, society deems that group of academically successful graduates as the brightest and the best. Mm -hmm. And um, they do end up going on into leadership positions and that group of graduates typically have no experience of prison, except perhaps as a victim. Um, they, they experience schools, they experience hospitals, they go on to become MPs and they advocate for schools and hospitals. They go on to use those systems. They do not experience prison. And that means that prison doesn't have policymakers and leaders in society who have first-hand experience of it. So we want to attract the kind of future prime ministers in society and um, and have them spend at least two years on the front line of a prison. So they come to us, uh, about 30% are career changers, 70% straight from university, and they train to become a prison officer. And they, two years, they are focused on breaking cycles of reoffending on the front line of a prison. So that's building relationships with prisoners day in, day out, working out, you know, what is it about that prison that's going to help them not reoffend on release? What's What's the things that you can help support them into education or work, um, you know, back in contact with their family? Um, what are the things that, that might help them not reoffend and release? And, and then alongside that, they're doing a master's in system change in challenging environments. So they're, they're learning about how to change the whole system. And in the second year, there's a dissertation focused on real research about what works in your prison or doesn't work and then making system suggestions off the back of that about how you can fix the whole system so um so it's really for for i guess people who are they want to make 
the world a bit better. They want mm -hmm. to work with some people who often, you know, there's people in prison who everyone else has given up on, who've been written off, um, and really people who want to give them another chance. And, and also people who want to make society safer because prisoners coming out and reoffending, you know, they live in our communities. And frankly, I'd rather that they have someone work with them in prison so they don't reoffend on release because it means me and my children are going to be safer. Safe. Yeah. Um, and, and those prisons will have, you know, will have their lives transformed. Yeah. And, and actually, I think it's just worth saying there are incredible prison officers in the system already. Yeah. So all of our mentors and all of our training is delivered by existing prison officers. Okay. And we um, we give existing prison officers training and support to become teachers, to become mentors, or if they're already teaching prison officers, we, we try and support them to be even better at their teaching. And we really celebrate them and they pass on that expertise to our participants who just bring a different way of problem solving from their academic training yeah. into the mix, which is a really helpful addition to the team. How how do people find out about the program? How where 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 would yeah. how does people how does how does anyone know that there is a program called Unlocked Graduates? Noreen, it is a good question that I spend a lot of time and energy on. Uh, so it used to be that we did lots of career fairs um, at university. That's where we target people. You know, you go along in your final year. Um, you think, crikey, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. You stumble across. I stumbled across Teach First that way. Mm -hmm. um, and we we do lots of that work. We also uh, we have brand representatives on campus who talk about our work. Uh, we do things like this, so try and you know get the name out, try and get people to if they know someone brilliant who's graduated from university, who's um, got the the kind of skills that will mean that they're going to be a great prison officer. Um, please do ask them to apply. Um, so so it's lots of that kind of work since the pandemic. Um, career fairs have moved online, mm -hmm. which has been a lot less successful. I think turnout is a lot less. And you also don't kind of stumble across yes. careers in the same way as you do in a careers fair. Uh, so we're on campus a lot, running competitions and doing a lot of social media and, um, yeah, des desperately trying to get our name out there and build a brand. We've been much more successful than I feared. When we, <laughs> when we launched the scheme, it did feel a bit... Um, you know, it is a bit nuts, like asking, um, even when I tell people what I do, people, are, I mean, they really think that they've misheard, you know, mm. they can't be prison officers, you can't be expecting graduates from the best university to be prison officers. Yes. And that's part of the problem, right? Part of the status issue. Yeah. But um, we, we have found actually that we've, we've really had amazing numbers of applications and incredible talent coming onto the programme. Um, and you know, we, we have lots of people applying from um, the most competitive universities academically in the country. We have lots of people applying from other universities. We actually don't look at where someone went to university when they apply. We do completely blind mm -hmm. um, screening in terms of in terms of someone's university background. Um, but we and last year we, we were in the Times Top 100 graduate schemes. Last year we were in on 36. Um, in that, I think we, we bumped out Microsoft, which is quite exciting. Um, and we had 24 applications for every place last year, which makes us one of the most oversubscribed graduate schemes. Um, and it's really surprised us, to be honest. That, um, but it's wonderful. You know, this is a generation who want to make a difference. We just had Rachel talking about that. You know, this is a generation who who want to to do, you know, they want to work with people who, 
mm. are challenging and they want to solve difficult problems. And what more difficult problem than how to reduce reoffending of people when they come out of prison? So do you know if people who apply to your scheme, um, um, do they face any opposition from family and friends? And if yes, how do they overcome it or how do you help them overcome that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great it's exactly um what we found and actually we know that we lose a lot of people because they go home and tell their family and their family really freak out um and you know we we um all of our participants when they join uh have a story about telling their families and um a lot of those stories are that their family was shocked. Sometimes their family is upset, um, sometimes scared, sometimes worried. I think the perception of the prison officer job creates that. What's What's interesting is that, um, you know, joining the army is very risky. Um, joining the police is very risky, but there's something about the prison officer job, the combination of low status and risk, mm -hmm. yes. which is particularly off-putting. Um, Actually, we, we've tried to own it. So we had an advert last year, you can see on, on YouTube, which was um, first person account of someone just telling people. And it was the What the F campaign. And it was just people's going, what the F? You know, just being shocked that they were going to be a prison officer. So um, we've also, that's, it's also like we, you know, I'm, I'm making a joke of it, but it's actually also really upsetting. You know, it's really upsetting yeah. that these prison officers who are working with some of the hardest to reach, most difficult people in our society, doing this incredible job day in, day out. You know, I've bumped into kids who I taught in prison um, and and many of them were really challenging kids. You know, they had hugely complex and difficult. 24% of people in prison grew up in the care system. 50% were expelled from school. These are people in early childhood who had were identified as needing additional support from the state you know, from, from the earliest childhood. And in fact, there's there's huge correlation between um, intergenerational reoffending. If you've got a male family member in prison, you're much more likely to end up offending than if you haven't. So prison officers are doing the most heroic job. They're going in day in, day out. They are literally saving lives. They are helping people turn around their lives at the lowest possible point for some of them. And yet they go to the pub at the end of the day and someone says, what do you do for a job? And they say, I'm a prison officer. And the stereotype attached from that, which our polling has showed, is that people think, sometimes think that they're stupid, corrupt, um, violent, or like some combination of those three. And we saw during the pandemic when key workers were being offered um, discounts on uh, at, at supermarkets and prison officers were excluded from that. Or, you know, they were having to, to actively ask for it. And in one case, in the north of England, there was a sign saying prison officers don't count as, as key workers at a petrol station close to a prison. My prisoners have prison officers were trying to go in and get those key worker discounts. Mm -hmm. And like these are people who are doing the most incredible, most important public sector job um, and, and for, for very little recognition. So. Parents should be proud. You know, when your kids come home and they say they want to work with a group of people who most of society have given up on, who various professionals through their lives have been unable to reach, um, that, you know, I, I think that's a pretty good sign you've brought up, you know, a pretty great kid. And um, of course, people are worried. And of course, you know, we, we don't shy away from the fact prisons aren't 
they can be a dangerous environment. They are an um, you know often unpleasant environment, but they're also an environment where you can help make change with some of the most um, with some of the most challenging and difficult people in our country. And that's an extraordinary job that deserves a huge amount of respect. I think the media has a part to play as well. Whenever you see a prison depicted in in anything like bad girls, for example, they're always shown to be really yes not that kind person yeah. in charge of a prison yeah exactly and and when i think um i mean i i it's it's very uncool now and slightly shows my age and my demographic but um i saw dangerous minds and like the part of i used to love those stories when i was a teacher of like teachers who went into kids everyone else had given up on and they were able to work with those kids to help those kids have a different future you know and they were the they were the people who never gave up on those kids and they were still there for them and day in day out they fought for them and they went beyond above and beyond and you know against the odds those kids did brilliantly and um and like that was that kind of hero teacher I I now think there's various problems with but but um I found that really inspiring and you're right every prison officer depiction you know it's it's um actually there was time which was on BBC quite recently, um, a, at least kind of showed a nuance and, and someone who cared and in that job because they cared. But mm-hmm. most people join the prison service because they want to, because they want to help people and because they care. And um, yeah, there's a real problem. I'd love there to be a hero prison officer TV show or film where a prison officer goes in, builds relationships with prisoners. You know, we have a participant who was in one of the toughest London local prisons um, and he, in fact, he's still working there, but with a third sex organization now. And while he was there, he worked with a prisoner and he supported him um, to get him a job on release. And that ex-prisoner now has that job, is very successful in it. Mm. And he talks about this prison officer who was our ambassador, who, um, who saw that he was carrying a book and asked him what, you know, said, oh, I've read that. How are you finding it? What do you think of it? And he said, just in that moment, they were just two men having a conversation. It yeah. wasn't a prison officer and a prisoner. And at that point, he began to trust him. And then he began to work with him on on trying to get a job and doing this job application. And at the end of it, he got a job. And now he hasn't gone back to prison. And that's, I mean, that's incredible. And that's the kind of thing we should be seeing on TV. So if there are anybody, if anybody's listening who can commission a BBC yes. or ITV play, Get in touch yeah. with Natasha Porter and she'll... <laughs> or like a Hollywood a, film develop, with exactly, tears develop, and... Yeah, yeah develop exactly. A, develop a team, <laughs> a, a, you know, a story <laughs> idea and let's get this off. Right. Um, we're going to break for a little while. We're just going to go over to the news desk and and some and play some ads. Uh, we'll be right back. So, um, just... Um, so, Natasha, just hold on for a bit and listen to the news and we'll be back with you shortly. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. On Monday, the government recommended the wearing of face masks in communal areas and corridors in schools in response to the Omicron variant. Teachers are now urging that this recommendation becomes a mandatory ruling as it now is on public transport and in shops. 
Head teachers feel the advice for schools makes it difficult to enforce and teachers would like the guidance extended to classrooms. Dr Mary Bousted, NEU Joint General Secretary said, COVID does not recognise the difference between a corridor and a classroom and a failure to require face coverings in both areas in secondary schools is a misstep in the latest guidance. Dr Patrick Roach, NAS UWT General Secretary, agreed. If schools are to maintain safety during the remainder of this term, the government will need to accept that its messaging needs to be stronger. Face coverings have been mandatory in Scottish classrooms since November 2020. In Scotland, educational institutes are increasingly introducing gender-neutral toilet facilities. Schools in Dundee, East Renfrewshire and Edinburgh have all introduced these facilities following warnings in 2019 from Scottish National Party politicians and by the Scottish Equality and Human Rights Commission that schools would leave themselves open to lawsuits if they did not provide them. Parents across Scotland have, however, raised concerns over gender-neutral toilets in secondary schools, which can see 12-year-old girls and 18-year-old men sharing facilities. Harry Scott, Scottish Borders Councillor, said, Why is it not possible to have male, female and gender-neutral toilets which would cater for the needs of everyone? Why can that not be achieved in our schools? This has been your daily education news briefing. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Welcome back. I have with me Natasha Porter, who's the CEO and um, of Unlocked Grants, which is a program which um, trains people for leadership positions um, as prison officers. Um, Natasha, how do you measure the impact of your program? Yeah, it's it's a great program. It's a great question, and coming from um, schools where impact measures have become really uh details i think since definitely when i started teaching in 2006 um to now i think they've just become incredibly well thought about and there's there's also of course a terminal exam at the end of schooling which gives you lots of i mean lots of questions about whether too much hangs on that but um there's there are lots of data points in prisons there is much less clear data but we do have some excellent data points. So firstly, in terms of our recruitment process, we know, um, we know, as I talked about, that we've got some great 
status attached to our program now we've got a lot of great people coming through we've got a lot of applications we've really managed to raise the status of the job and we're seeing a shift in the way that people perceive the prison officer role through that um the real thing that we care about though is breaking cycles of reoffending, and we do have some proxy measures for that um there's there's, for example, the prisons who we've been working with for the longest and where we've had the greatest concentration of unlocked graduates have seen improvements across those proxy measures in more than other prisons generally, nationally, and more than other similar prisons. So we, we have seen improvement in those prisons. Of course, correlation you know, causation, there's, yeah. there's um, and we, we have only been running for, um, this is our fifth cohort going in now, and we are a relatively small proportion of staff in, in the prison. But the other really exciting data point, because we do have a lot of good qualitative data, the quantitative data is hard to come by, um, is that our recent uh, governor survey, 100% of prison governors who we work with said that culture on the landing of their prison has improved since having our graduates in their prison. So um, so we've got those data points. We then do have lots of examples of individual uh, stories of participants who've been able to work with prisoners and improve their outcomes. So we um, had a, a prison officer at Pentonville Prison who uh, prison, prisoners were arriving at prison without their reading glasses. You go to court in the morning, you don't think you're going to end up in prison and suddenly you end up in prison. You didn't bring your reading glasses. Actually, you can't read anything. That means you can't fill in forms. It means you can't access education. Um, she sourced a thousand pounds to get a thousand pairs of reading glasses from her local pound structure. And the prison now has reading glasses for people when they come into custody. I mean, it's, it's not a kind of, doesn't require a innovative genius, but it is a very smart solution to uh, a very consistent problem. And we've also got a lot of evidence of our participants doing that. I think one of the things we do is give them permission to identify problems and fix them. And there's there's a lot of that that goes on. Wonderful. So we, we're almost coming to the end of the program. So just <laughs> last few questions. Um, your graduates, when they leave your program, what positions do they go to take? Uh, it's a three-part question, so that's one question. <laughs> Second is, do some of them stay on and say, well, you know, I'd rather just, uh, you know, I've done the course, I've got my master's, but I I'm going to stay in the prison service. And thirdly, do any of them ever go into school leadership? So, in fact, we've had some school leaders come onto our program. Um, yeah, and, and been really successful, actually. And we, we had a, um, we've had a teacher who just finished our program last year, and now he's governor grade, so senior leadership, overseeing education um, in a prison. And while he was on the placement, he set up a workshop doing gardening and horticulture in his prison. So to get the prisoners outside and growing fruit and veg and um, he got a qualification attached to it. And that that's still going, even though he's now moved to a different prison where he's heading up learning and development. We also have a, um, a head teacher who went through the program who's um, who's in the north of England and, and been really successful. We've got people who've been through the army. We've got uh, probation, lawyers. Um, and, and I think people who come having done other jobs, especially jobs where you're dealing with, you know, if, if you can manage a classroom, 
can actually mm. manage a prison wing. Yeah. So there's some really transferable skills and um, yeah, so, so some real achievements with that. In terms of uh, at the end of the programme, actually, when we began, we were quite agnostic about where people ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, what we did find was about 70%, at least immediately after finishing the programme, they are staying in prison, they are staying operational. And I think you that prisons are, they've got a lot wrong with them mm-hmm. and they're also really fixable and they really kind of reel you in. Um, it's a pretty unique environment. Whatever social issue you're interested in, it exists in, a, in an extreme form in a prison. So if you're someone who's kind of interested in social policy and making the world better, I mean, there's no better place in some ways to, to do that work than in a prison. So we um, so about 70% have stayed operational. Some of them have gone into governor grades, um, so into senior leadership jobs, um, many middle leaders. We've had some go into the centre. We've, um, we've got our first inspector who's joined the inspectorate for the prison service. So, so all over. But our, our mission is really about changing society's view of prison and Mm -hmm. schools and hospitals society cares about prison they they only really care that it's tough and and that's fine if you don't release people but actually if people are released from prison then prison needs to be somewhere which rehabilitates them or else they're going to re-offend and there's going to be more victims of crime so so we really take a pragmatic view about prison being a place of of rehabilitation we want people we want members of parliament who've spent time on the front line of prison, so they advocate for prisons. We want people running businesses who've been a prison officer, so they recruit ex-prisoners, because ex-prisoners find it really hard to get a job on release. But someone like Timpsons, who recruits loads of ex-prisoners, we'd love love lots of business leaders to be doing that. And frankly, if they've done our programme, they're more likely to be. Lovely. We want them to be in policy, making intelligent policy that recognises the front line of prisons. Um, I'd love a prisons minister who'd spent two years on our programme. Yeah. Um, and I'd love, you know, when, when they come out with huge budget cuts for the prison service, frankly, I'd like to get some, um, I'd like to get some MPs fighting against it. And if they spent two years in a prison, hopefully they'll do that. Well, good, good luck. And I hope, I hope, you know, it works out. And it's, it's, thank you so much. It's been such a fascinating discussion. And um, I've learned lots and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you, Noreen. Thank you for giving up your Wednesday to come and chat to us. And like I said, I have learned so much. I didn't know half of what you told me. So it's been quite an education for me too. Thank you so much. If you or anyone else listening wants to join the programme, we are still open for applications for next year's cohort. And if you know people who are brilliant, who you think would really be able to work with those hardest to reach, um, then this is the place to come and do it. So uh, yeah. do send them our way. <laughs> we will do. Thank you. Okay. Thanks well, so much. Thank you. So that, with that, we come to the end of tonight's um, The Late Show. Um, thank you for joining me and see you in a couple of weeks' time. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.